0: But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to run!
2: Wherever you are, however, you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by creative consultant consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Matt Cummings, along with Tobias Wright. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with soprano Eileen Perez, who was just named a 2019 Opera News Awards honoree. We ask her about what you're supposed to give a soprano who has it all for this Christmas. And then we play Monday Evening Quarterback on last week's productions of Wagner's Siegfried at Lyric Opera of Chicago, Tchaikovsky's Iolanta at Chicago Opera Theater, and the Met HD broadcast of Nico Muhly's Opera Marnie. Plus, it's the two-minute drill. You get everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land with our team's hot takes on those stories. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. Or you can tweet us at OperaBoxScore. And without further ado, Oliver Camacho, are you there? I'm
3: here and you did not take over this show. Thank you very much for being here last <laughs> week, but we're back. I'm and back. for those listeners who are worried that it's become the Weston Williams show, <laughs> you're I, not. I think the
2: you're word is have to dis- wait for more avant garde a couple more weeks. <laughs> the word is disappointed, not uh not worried. Uh, Tobias Wright, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, got my back shaved recently. Good to be nice, in the studio. Eileen nice, Perez. Thank you for very much. Perez. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to turn on the phone line. She's just not going to be there anymore. Uh, <laughs> Matt Cummings, how's it going? Uh, it's going all right. Twist, it's winter now. That happened yeah. fast. Yeah, it really did. Uh, I mean, it's, I feel like you know, I want the Winter Olympics to happen, but uh, there, that's what that's that's there. Wait, two years out. You're I out. I think it's like three years. Three out. years. I was Goodness. just last year. Yeah. I also
3: miss the Olympics. So I'm so I, glad you feel feeling I that. I always so.
4: miss the Olympics. Yeah. At any at any given month, I'm just <laughs> counting down the month that how many it is till the next Olympics. Matt
5: collects Wheaties boxes from all the Olympics, <laughs> Aww, <and they're laughs> proudly displayed on our <laughs> fireplace mantle. All right, let's get into some opera.
1: Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
2: Eileen Perez is in demand at the world's leading opera houses and cultural capitals. She has just been named the 2019 Opera News Award honoree and has won both the 2012 Richard Tucker Award, uh, thereby becoming the first Latina recipient of that award, and the 15th annual Placido Domingo Award. Miss Perez, welcome to the show.
6: Hi, I, gentlemen. This is so exciting. <laughs> I have a little bit of an echo, but I, I was trying to tweet. <laughs> I was trying to tweet and say, "At Opera Box Four, thanks so much for having me right now."
2: Um Thanks for tweeting. You know, our uh, our Twitter page is uh, a little bit dead lately because uh, none of us want to uh, want to do it. I'm looking at you, Toby. Uh, but that's okay. <laughs> that is totally fine. Throwing
5: shade in front of our guests. That's
2: what I do. I that's what I do it. best.
5: I, I mean, we don't it. mean to air our dirty laundry in front of you, but thank you for joining us on the show. <laughs> oh.
6: I Love it. Where is your preferred channel for your
3: followers? You guys, At Opera Box uh, Score, we do have a Twitter yeah. handle. Mm-hmm. I manage a Facebook mm-hmm. yeah. page, so that has the most consistent posting. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so okay. much shade well, tonight. I love it. <laughs> so I will share away. Let's let's get right into this. Um, so I mean, I think everybody who listens to our show knows who you are. So we're obviously very honored to have you. But I will say that, like in reading a lot of your press, uh, it often comes up that you are this latina or the first mexican or whatnot and i wonder if you ever get you know like annoyed that this keeps getting inserted into your the praise about your work or or maybe are you the one that's actually inserting this because you want to be outspoken guess what
6: i'm the one (laughs) (laughs) and here's why actually you know kicking off with talking about twitter one of the reasons i left twitter was obviously you know our president is you know was just it, it was just so disgusting to me to be in that kind of oh with so much negativity on twitter um i I just shied away from it completely and then I realized you know what I need to be proud of my heritage and mm-hmm. certainly demonstrate that I am very proudly mexican American and I say that in in um in a way because I never felt, you know, so Mexican that I could be so legit when I go, you know, to Mexico and hang out with my family there, because I definitely have been born and raised here in Chicago, in the Northwest suburb. Um, and then in America, you know, I'm like, not American enough, it seems, because of how I look and and just judgments that just, you know, it's racial tensions are, are what they are because of how we perceive people. So... I just decided to own it and then to also, um, I feel very much in line with the idea in in artistry. If you, you know, if you don't have a clear picture of how you want to sing a phrase or portray a character, have the idea of that plan in mind, it's very hard to then um, craft your performance. So in a way, for me, identity-wise, to say I'm Mexican-American, I think it, help, it was helpful for me, for example, to to see Ana Maria Martinez in mm-hmm. the art form, other superheroes like, you know, Montserrat Caballé, rest in peace, and Victoria de Los Angeles before, you know, the, mm-hmm. all of these ladies with um, Hispanic or Latin American roots, Bidu Sayao. I was a big fan of hers. That helped me... Feel like I could have someone's voice to relate to, and sort of get the imagery of their vocal colorings and their vocal shadings. So I thought, you know what? If I was inspired by that, why not embrace that and and you know kind of take a little bit more ownership in that? And then the the opposite of that in artistry, of course, is music is a universal language. And it's the place where we all come together and, and get rid of all of those labels, right? Right. So that's been my way of feeling empowered.
2: <laughs> and I think it's, it, it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that can be sort of a, a, a powerful artistic statement, too, uh, particularly mm-hmm. in the field of something as multinatural, multicultural as opera, mm-hmm. uh, something that can really uh, help to not only... Uh, uh, bring up sort of uh, oppressed peoples, but also really show how how we can all kind of come together and really form this sort of great artistic tradition uh, that can help kind of heal these wounds and heal these racial mm, divides. Yeah, um, I love
6: that, yes. And I mean, if we can get, a you know, if the kernel of that is somehow delivered, and by just me writing Mexican-American soprano, I mean... <laughs> and then let the and let the artwork speak for itself, you know, and let the relationships that I cultivate with fellow artists and the theaters. I mean, that's just adding so much more um substance I think to to who I am as a person and the characters that I then portray artistically, but also the relationship off stage, you know. I, I think oh
4: sorry. Well, absolutely speaking of all all the characters you're portraying on stage, I kind of wanted to to, to ask you a little bit more about that because you've taken on a huge uh, range of characters both in terms of the number and the variety of roles that you've been singing in recent years. And I, mm-hmm. I was curious if I could ask you a little bit more about that in terms sure. of what what is it that you do uh, what, how do you decide what, what role would be good to learn at any given time? And what do you do in your study to make it feel comfortable for
5: you? She takes the contracts, Matt. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> well,
4: I mean, are you, are you in a position to, to have a little bit more steering in your Now I am. Now
6: I am. Um, <laughs> who was it? Was that Oliver? That was Matt. Matt? Who no. was it? That was Matt that asked Matt. question
5: and it was Toby who was the smart ass. Can I say that <laughs> Oh, Toby, I like you a lot.
6: <laughs> okay. Um, Yes. Let's get real. Um, In terms of starting a career, you know, one of the things that I just recently remembered because of this thing that I just did last month, um, jumping in was one of those things that could keep the momentum in your career going and also introduce you into an audience in a very high stake, high risk. But if you nail it, if you nail the performance, you know, you get invitations back to the theater. Plus, you you know, you you really, uh, what do they say? Cut your teeth on, on
7: mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm.
6: And so I think at the beginning, I, I so I went to school at IU, and then I went to AVA, the Academy of Vocal Arts in Philadelphia. And IU is in Bloomington, for your I'm sure your audience knows this. But um, at AVA, we had six operas a year, and you could understudy. understudy you know well you could pick everything to understudy if you weren't assigned a role and sit in on coaching and work with maestro and so i had by the time i in the four years at ABA, i had six roles that i was ready for so i had Gilda, adina Susanna the marriage of figaro um and then i had understudied the Contessa in the marriage of figaro so a lot of the oh, oh yeah i already said Gilda. um anand levili which was off and kind of random, but then I had Nini in La Boheme, which of course is my bread and butter. I didn't have Violetta at the time, but I was studying that role and preparing it and have wanted to sing it since I ever heard an opera CD. Um, And so I think that the roles that I knew or was fortunate enough to study while in school became some of those core repertoire roles that I could you know they' they're the most performed operas in the world and it, certainly in the in the national you know opera scene that we have here in the United States but also abroad in Vienna and um, Vienna and where else London, Berlin I feel and Hamburg were four places outside the states that I had. Not, not only myself, but I think everybody could have a chance because of the repertoire theaters that they are, that there's always a chance that, you know, someone has to cancel or pull out, or, or mm-hmm. there are cancellations. There's always a possibility of cancellations, and they're willing to take a risk on a young talent. And so having those core roles ready to go is certainly, certainly helped me and it launched me. And then, you know, it, it delivered which was really great <laughs> um but I think that that's how at the beginning I I thought of repertoire and I thought of core repertoire and I thought of taking on roles and certainly I was thinking about the money for sure because you have to um you know be able to work enough to sustain you know your living and everything um and part of actually one of the work-related ones that I took on that I haven't sung again, but I would, I, I would, I would love to. I think it'd be great fun. Um, and true love in.
3: Oh sure, in sure. The Progress. I'm sorry, and she's not Mexican.
6: That, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I love. Oliver. It. Oh my gosh, challenge <laughs> it already. That's great, but see, see what I mean about how then.
4: You do away with the labels. <laughs> so, uh, so as I'm uh, oh, sorry. So, but as you're studying no, no, these no. roles, what is it that you that is there anything that you do to to make it make yourself feel not only comfortable but uh but individual in your interpretation? Something that you can that you can do because you're such a specific and and uh, unique artist. What is it that you do to bring these characters to life and really make each one of them your own?
6: Well, I think I really owe that to my voice teacher who I was so lucky to have since I was 15 years old. So his whole description about being uh, an opera singer is when you sing, to be as close to the spoken quality of of your own voice. So it's so natural, and therefore it's so distinct. And so it's already uniquely you that's making the, the, you know, declaiming the text and how you're going to say the phrases and how you're going to react to what's being said to you and everything. So I think that fundamentally, I think that that's what creates the uniqueness. Um, and then all the research, all the preparation, all of the listening to recordings, older singers, singers that you know, you know now because of YouTube, you could even hear people on Medici TV or on a radio broadcast. Um, and that all informs you know and interpretation but ultimately it's it's done by all of the hours of work that you know one personally puts into it so, and and with the people that you work with i think too you know they also have uh an offering of a production which changes how you move and 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 how you feel about the piece or what's trying to be portrayed um and of course wonderful colleagues and great conductors and great directors and a wonderful audience.
5: So you talk about wonderful colleagues and and directors. I am curious. This is Toby again asking you questions. And this is a real question. I'm not here to just mouth (laughs) off the whole time. No, I
7: love it. Toby, please. Uh, I never have this real talk. This is why I'm so excited to be on our show. We
5: get down in the dirt on this show. You find out that we're not actually professional. (laughs) We're just huge fangirls over here. Um, (laughs) No, but I'm curious because you talked about some of the voices that you loved and that helped you um, really gain your own identity and see where you were moving forward and and that has to be fulfilling to know that you are doing that and that future generations will look and listen to your voice and grow from that but i'm curious what for you has been the most fulfilling production or performances that you've ever had and and that can be you know at, at any given uh, opera company or with a particular group of people um and what was it that set that apart for you
6: well the transformative piece the most transformative piece thus far for me has been it was the experience of seeing uh, Tatiana back in the in Jake Tichenor's opera Great Scott, and oh, it debuted oh. in Dallas. In we did not expect that. <laughs> We're all looking at each other like, "What are you talking Tatiana? about?" <laughs> I hope you have a chance to listen to it, and with you know, I mean, I will mail you my score, and I'll mail you a poster of the whole.
2: Absolutely, you know,
6: if you. And here's why all of the archetypes of the lead singers and the story was uh, uncomfortably cliche. Mm
7: -hmm.
6: So it really challenged, like, okay, it, it addressed the fear of putting on a new opera. It addressed the fear of, like, everything a singer thinks through, habits, it was all in that show. And you come away, thanks to Terrence McNally's libretto, and Jake's Music, of course, Um, and all of the artists. You know, Flicka was in the room, Joy Cedonato, Mike Mays. you know. You know, some people. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, that's the thing. I think I was so freaked out by it. (laughs) And then, and asked, and finally dared to ask, like, Flicka, how did you imagine you know, did you imagine this in your career and how well, did you feel these, like, where are you as scared as I am basically? And she's like, Oh, I just, I just think you're great. Or I, or she would just say the most positive thing. I, I think she's a blessed woman. Like, I think that she's, she has magic. I, I feel like <laughs> when I talk to Jake and Flicka, they are magical angels on this earth. I'm not kidding. You walk away and you feel like I just spoke with God. Um, <laughs> And that's how that's why it was transformative, because it challenged me to play a role that is uncomfortable, stereotypically soprano and not feel bad for walking off with the show. She steals the show with the Starry Spangled Banner. And the director, Jack O'Brien, was like, yes, but don't hate her for it. She's doing exactly what she needs to do to survive. And mm. she's good at it. Mm-hmm. so don't worry about, like, go out there and nail it and have fun. And don't worry about being hated, or <laughs> which <laughs> never really happened. But these are the fears that I had going into a new opera. And maybe, you know, you guys probably get to talk to so many um, artists who are renowned for debuting new works. And I'm telling you, it's terrifying for me. And I have the highest regard and respect for them. Um and that's why it transformed me. And it's still there I mean there is a line in the where Joyce was singing a cadenza as Arden Scott and she messes it up or whatever and she's like, Oh, this shit is hard <laughs> <laughs> And <they're> like, Yes <laughs> You know, and like the times that I've said that when I'm in rehearsal or just wanna you know, or you, you get huge challenges like Uh, an audience at la scala and you think yep this shit is hard yep just keep going just keep going so that to me was a transformative experience and it was because of working with such um i guess i guess in life i
5: love that you called her blessed (laughs)
2: I think that's the right word for it. (laughs) Such blessed colleagues. Speaking of blessed colleagues, last week we learned that you will be honored at the 14th Annual Opera News Awards. You're going to be joining the ranks of the true icons of this art form, as you did when you run the Richard Tucker Award previously. Has there been an award that you've you've earned that has meant something more special to you than what we might imagine here in the studio here?
6: Oh, my God! I mean that's the thing. The truth is when these moments happen, I get uh, you go you i i don't know I won't worry about it okay I <laughs> no,
5: none of us have won the Richard so Tucker award
6: <laughs> <laughs> so much in life I cry because I'm upset about something, and then you happy cry, and that is all the time of moments you know, and then I I feel an immense responsibility, an immense sense of how do I connect what this means to me, but then how do I how do I embrace it, and how do I say something that's going to matter? Mm. And and I think that that's that's kind of what's left in my mind. So I've been working on my speech. <laughs> 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 uh,
2: feel free to hit us with a couple of key phrases uh, just to practice.
6: Oh, I can
7: tell you it won't.
3: <laughs> American in
2: Carnage.
7: well uh is that toby again no that was me
2: we we just have a bunch of smart alex on the show it's fine uh (laughs) but uh, eileen uh congratulations once again on on the award and thank you so much for joining us tonight unfortunately we got to wrap it up here and move on to the next segment but thank you so much for joining us
3: it's never enough time eileen I'm, i'm so sorry but we're just gonna Spend the rest of the evening
2: listening to your recording. So it'll be great. Oh, that's so sweet.
7: Thank you, guys.
3: Thank Thank
2: you so, so much. Coming up next: Siegfried, Iolanta, and Marnie on Monday evening. Quarterback. That's only on Opera Box Score and WNUR FM, Evanston, Chicago.
1: Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this.
0: Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the barahunk hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at OperaBoxScore at gmail.com for rates and availability.
1: Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score.
2: That's right, we're back on W N U R F M, fm evanston, evanston Chicago. Uh- <laughs> I think I really nailed the landing on that one. Evanston, yeah. Chicago. It's not the first time I've said W N U. W-N-U-R. Oh. So <laughs> we started
3: that segment listening to uh, one of the performances from her 2012 Rosenblatt recital. You can find, I think, the whole thing on the YouTube. But that was the uh, Willow song uh, from Otello. And Which Otello. From Verdi's Othello. Thank you. <laughs> the best From, Othello. from, from the <laughs> Not good. the Rossini Otello. From the good Othello. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like that is a, a recording Sorry, no. that I feel actually is perfect, and I've listened to like just about everybody saying that Aria, and it's with piano. There's no Emilia to like sing the El Vento moment, you know, mm. but it is exquisite. And if you want to understand Eileen Perez as a singer, just watch that. Devote 16 minutes of your life to Wait. it. What?
5: Can I tell you what I'm doing?
3: <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I'm liking every one of her
5: Instagram photos. <laughs>
3: Social media
4: on the map right so,
3: here. Anyway, go to the YouTube and watch her sing Mia madre Yeah, I'm,
2: I'm sure we can also get on our website as well. It um, is,
3: I'm not even kidding you. you. You folks, you've been listening to me since opera now. This is one of the best things on YouTube. You have to watch it. She
2: is absolutely phenomenal. I can tell that uh, Oliver is getting into uh, critic mode right now, Uh. so you know what that (laughs) means. It's time for Monday Evening Quarterback.
1: Pass or fail, here's Monday Evening Quarterback.
2: So it's that segment where we talk about operas and uh, criticize them heavily. Uh, so uh, well, we what's were just, first on the chopping block? We were Oliver? just
3: talking about this uh, a couple weeks ago. That what what right do we have to talk about shows in Chicago that mm. may not pertain to our you know our audience? Like we're we're reviewing like some storefront opera or we're reviewing a production at Lyric Opera that's been seen a gajillion times with an interesting cast. But I'll say that like if you're an opera fan. And you were in Chicago this weekend. You had a lot to choose from. It was a good week in you Chicago. You had Verdi Requiem with Piotr Bachawa mm. at with CSO, which is an opera, but we all know that like we it's love not that. not opera. Yeah, <laughs> it's essentially say. an opera <laughs> yeah. in
2: Latin. Verdi was not really holding back anything. Yeah, uh,
3: we had um, lyric operas, of Siegfried, which was I think it was like the third of four performances. Yeah, they're not it? they're on the, yeah. they're not doing many. Yeah, and there was um, Chicago Opera Theater season uh, opener of Yolanta with the conducting debut of, of Lydia Yankovskaya, and we'll start by talking about Marnie because that's something we could, we a lot of us could have seen uh, that Marnie in HD broadcast. But I think it's over. But there is a encore this Wednesday, and people who know me know that I am not into twenty first century opera. <laughs> what? And it was it was you know a, a struggle for me just to show up, but I am so glad that I did. I have completely. I've rethought my idea about Isabel Leonard. Isabel Leonard is a phenomenon in this show. She's so exquisitely beautiful just on stage, but the way she uses her voice, the way she pulls out her Bel Canto chops, the way she colors words, just like the variety uh, of her tone quality, uh, her acting was incredible. The production is incredible. The use of a... uh, chorus of marnie's you know they're like Mm. like her alter egos come out and sing straight tone in like like more of a british choral tradition was genius and um christopher maltman is great like every the cast is just great and the the show itself is so watchable and i think they figured out a way to make hd very special because this is a an opera that feels like a movie the scenes keep changing all the time like your eyes never get bored there's always something really beautiful to look at and something ha, interesting have you ever
2: it. seen the uh, hitchcock film i haven't and now
3: i mm. want to see it that's how much i like i, it. I would it's be
2: fascinated to like hear like a comparison of the of the two in terms of uh, well not just story cuz i imagine there's going to be differences but in terms of atmosphere uh, i feel like that's always a sort of a challenge when you're adapting a uh, something into an opera that used to be uh well, a, a film I, or I, a th- I believe that the piece. opera
4: is actually ad- is adapted from the source material more more so oh. than the Hitchcock movie itself directly, but I bet that there are some interesting overlaps there.
3: The amazing costume changes in this. The costumes in general are fantastic, and Nico Muley is writing in a language that I am very comfortable with. Like, there's enough sense of form, like where you're like, okay, this is an aria moment, or this is like a choral moment, you know, and here are some melodies for you, and it's not always you know, atonal, and it has a like, sort of Philip glass sort of energy to it. So it was great. I, cool. I, I
2: highly recommend it. I, I really wanted to see it. I wasn't able to this well, weekend. I you get see it on Wednesday. I did, it get, Wednesday. I, I did get a text from my Votox father. Day. So this is my father's review that he sent me just kind of in the middle of the day on a Saturday. Ooh, I liked Marnie. It packs quite a punch. Talk about complex characters. Music seems to work very well. That was my dad's review. Is that what Marnie. your dad sounds like? <laughs> I basically It's Funny, it. it sounds just like West. <laughs> so I saw I saw Marnie on on Saturday afternoon, and
3: then I went to Cot uh, that night. And I have to say that like Cot is is going in the right direction. I'm really happy. We had Lydia on the show about a year ago. We had Paul Kern on last week, so. I'm probably inclined to have liked this show. And actually,
2: last week we did uh, rebroadcast the uh, Lydia interview. So if you want to go back and hear that, you don't have to scroll all the way back to 2017. You can just go to last week's episode and hear it. Uh, yes. And you that's can. all its glory.
3: And I'll say that, like, you know, COT h- struggled uh, for a couple of years with, I'll just leave it there, they struggled. I know COT is listening at this very moment. You know? <laughs> and I think Elizabeth Cree last season mm-hmm. um, marked really, like,
4: really last season in general was pretty strong. Was Elizabeth Cree season, was a highlight, yeah. but
3: yeah. Uh, but I feel like, and yeah, Elizabeth Cree was fantastic. I would have recommended it to anybody. But this show marks like a new beginning for COT, especially with Lydia Yankovskaya. The music making was at such a high level, and the singing was so committed and so like engaged. And, like, everybody sounded like they knew what they were singing about. And I felt like I was hearing this opera for the first time. I've listened to it before. I've never actually watched it before. But I really felt like this is fresh. This is new. And this is something that I need to pay attention to. Hmm. And this girl, Catherine Weber, uh, I heard her sing Traviata uh, at Opera of DuPage, DuPage. Like last year. Yeah. But I didn't hear this singer that, that I heard at Yolanta. This is an incredible. Hmm. Isn't that awesome? It's an incredible voice. Do you know her? Yeah. It's got so much edge to it that, like, it almost is, it almost hurts. It's like the Studebaker Theater does not have great acoustics. And I thought, I don't know why people are doing opera here. It sucks. But she filled that house and it was piercing. And Mm. she obviously, like, could scale it back and give beautiful feminine colors. But when she needed to, like, add the metal, boy, was it there. And they had this bass, this Russian bass named Mikhail Svetlov singing the role of, I don't know, the king or something like that. Another crazy voice that you would imagine on any international stage. And then some of the local singers, Catherine, by the way, is local, uh, like John Irvin, who did the Ryan Opera Center, and a baritone I'd never heard of, Christopher Majera, who I'd never heard of before. Um, Fantastic. Like, just all around, great, great singing. And it's only like 80 minutes or whatever the show, but you feel like... You want it to be longer, and like it's just great the whole time. You know? Oliver,
5: you've just given two glowing I reviews in this. a row.
3: I, I'm amazing. really, really recommending it. And then the next day, oh, do you want to ask me about Marty before we move on?
4: Well, no, I wanted to ask you for I, I wanted to ask if you if there's a another shoe that's about to drop because oh. I know that you're not the biggest <laughs> fan of Wagner, and even people okay. who like Wagner, so, Siegfried
5: is a slog. I went to wait. Can I update you guys really yeah, quick? Yeah. Uh, Eileen Perez has not followed me back on Instagram. (laughs) I'll let you know throughout the show. (laughs) Thank
3: you. Thank you. So on Sunday, uh, I went to see the third of four performances of of Siegfried. And I'll say this. that People know I'm not a Wagner fan generally. I have been liking this David Putney uh, ring cycle. The ring cycle. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. so far, I've been liking it.
5: Visually, been one of the most beautiful things. You that think that it's I, beautiful?
3: Okay, I think it's clever. I don't think it's beautiful, but it, I that's think it's fair. Clever. Yeah, clever. That's yeah. a better word, I think.
5: Then it's aesthetically pleasing to look at. Yeah,
2: I do think that this one, uh, this particular Siegfried, really came into its own as far as the uh, production concept uh, went. As I feel like it was a little tenuous for Reingold. It clicked a little bit more for Valkyra. Um, but this Siegfried, they really, I feel like, fully committed to... Uh to the idea of it uh, in a way that they haven't for the previous two, and it really, really paid off. Um, Very much the concept of Siegfried as sort of a uh, spoiled toddler uh, really kind of hit home because the the first image of the opera after the uh, curtain goes up is this big hand-drawn dragon as if it had been... uh, drawn by a child with um, in crayon, yeah, yeah, in crayon with uh, with the word "Zigfried" scribbled all over it. And he he clearly made it himself. And there's all these oversized, um, uh, uh, like there's an oversized like a child's crib that he well, gets into. The, pers-
3: the perspective is very like skewed because you know Zigfried's supposed to be like this big boy, and right. Mima is supposed to be a, a dwarf. So it's like the the Furniture is all the wrong size. <laughs> they they it's put really they put
2: poor so. Eric Owens on yeah. stilts for the entire yeah. first two acts, and I loved it. Okay, uh, so
3: let's just say this: that, like you can read like proper reviews of this show and right. <laughs> read about read about the production. I just want to say that like if you are a serious Wagner fan, like if you think Wagner is sacred and you think that you know you just need to like put singers in good costumes and have them out there singing their hearts out. You probably won't like this production.
2: I don't know about that, because I am I I mean, unlike you, I do tend to worship at the altar of Wagner. You do, Uh, but
4: you also tend to worship at the altar of weirdness. That is (laughs) also...
2: (laughs) That's also true. Uh, And I think there's a lot of
3: mixed opinions about this show. And I'll say, as somebody who doesn't necessarily like Wagner and doesn't always remember who everybody is, what the relationships are, what the plot points are... Good luck in the ring. yeah, Yeah, this... This was spells it out for you. Almost really like clear. Of pandering. So you cannot yeah. be confused about what's happening and what the subtexts are and what the relationships are. It really spells it out. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I think for people first time going to see Dick Freed, they probably would appreciate that. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: This this is a very clear, very uh, dramatically. Uh, it felt really fast-moving for, uh, for Siegfried. For five hours, I did yeah. not...
3: So the uh, last time I saw Siegfried was here at Lyric Opera, and I left after the second intermission because I <laughs> was so lost and so bored out of my skull. Uh, this opera had a really brisk
2: pace. Yeah.
3: And then you get, in the last act, Christine Gerkey coming out as the reawoken... Oh, man. Build up. She and blew
2: the house down. It, it was, was phenomenal.
3: It was a jolt of adrenaline. Uh, and also Renita Miller singing Erda... Who I, I was just looking actually at um, a Ravinia playbill because I want to remember when I last saw Eileen Perez at Ravinia. Renita Miller was like singing like third lady in Magic Flute, and now she's singing you know Erda. How awesome is that? It was so good, incredible, and like her the concept they had for staging her so that she could just park and bark was pretty brilliant. <laughs> um, and but anyway, Christine Gerkey is sounding like a million bucks, mm-hmm. and she. Sang so like steely, so in tune, so powerful. Like it was everything you wanted from Brunhilde. It was so exciting. The way the opera ended was so exciting. And my only real complaint, uh, if I'm going to have a complaint, is that yeah. the Zigfried Burkhard Fritz, who was making
2: his I think American debut, yeah, American debut, and he, he was very quiet. Um, yeah. I think that he for Zigfried.
3: I think he might have like a, a more impressive sound in a smaller opera house. I felt like he was really pacing himself, and I appreciated he that was. he was pacing himself because the tone was always beautiful, and he sang in tune, and the you know that wasn't like a big wobble or anything like the, that.
2: The, the scenes where he was in the woods and singing to himself, he just was he he owned those completely. But that first sword forging aria was was you couldn't really hear him. Yeah, and, and when he uh, killed
3: the dragon, when he killed Mima, but there were like all these moments where. There was, it should have been like heroic sound, and it yeah. was just pretty. You know?
2: But that being said, usually, uh, when I went into this opera, I was uh, this production, I was like, the Siegfried is going to make or break this piece. If the Siegfried isn't 100%, uh, it's just going to fall flat. But despite him being a little bit quiet, I did not feel that at all. And I would still wholeheartedly recommend this production to anyone who wants to see any part of the ring cycle. This is this is a solid one to get to. Well, I think they'll and,
4: probably have to wait until next year because it looks like the last performance on Friday is sold, sold out. out already. Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> I'll say this
3: also, like, almost stole the show um, Diana Newman as the forest bird. Um, it's not a lot of music, right. but the music that she does have is so good, and she performs it. So well. she has, she's one of the former Ryan Opera Center ensemble members, and she's one of the smartest singers I've ever met in my life, and she has a very, like, kind of a, spicy tone quality like very like fast vibrato and like bright and like she sounds i mean it's very her you know Mm -hmm. and like she sounds like a bird and like when she sang this i was like this perfect casting and she has this really crazy wacky costume (laughs) and eric owens is using her as a puppet and has his hand up her back i guess (laughs) (laughs) and she plays like puppet very well it was it was so charming and exactly right it was pitch perfect i heard some complaints about the forest bird being like a really important character. It's like the only like true heroic character in this opera, you know, and why defile her by making her a puppet, a you know? A puppet. Yeah. I, who, who is
5: the, who complained?
3: Uh, I won't say, <laughs> <laughs> but I, the person, the person who complained also thought that this opera was just making a farce out of a very serious opera. It's like, okay, well, well it,
2: it, I mean, there, there's a lot of humor in the opera that people forget about. And the, uh, was what Wagner seri- known for his sense all, all, of humor? Well, I'll like, of honestly, these, honestly,
5: if you can make it a little—I mean, how can you possibly make this? There were seri- several. Like, there were several moments so of laugh out loud. Like it's an impossible plot to seriously say out loud, and then just have somebody be like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." I mean, like, why not have some humor with it? I guess you know, and shed light on it. And that's kind of like when they yes. were going to Valhalla at the yeah. end of yeah. Reingold. I was like. Oh my God! It's a rainbow road that is made out of rubber bands, and like I really actually appreciate. And from (laughs)
4: where I stand, it does not have to. The opera does not have to be presented exactly the same way every time you put anyone ever puts it on.
3: I mean, the thing is that like I not like I'm not a fan of the show, but as I was, you're not a fan of opera box score. I'm not a fan of the (laughs) Ring Cycle, but as I was watching this particular Siegfried, I actually was able to imagine, wow, to do this show the way I can imagine it now. Now that I actually understand the plot and the characters. Would be so expensive. Not that the show oh, was yeah. expensive, but if you're really gonna do the ring cycle like the way I think we can all think of it in our brains, like with dragons and like giants stuff like that, that's really effing expensive. So why not do something like this, which is manageable? We'll
4: have to pitch
2: it to HBO for, yeah. the, for, <laughs> <Exactly>. for after <laughs> Game of totally, Thrones. <laughs> it's totally like that. And I they need I their would, next yeah. new. I week. would absolutely watch that show so much. We got to move on. We got the two minute drill coming up. David Daniels' reputation continues to crumble. That's coming up next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this.
0: Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Alright, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on Opera News in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Joseph Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed.
1: This just in, the two-minute drill.
2: Time now for all
1: of the uh,
2: opera headlines that you need to know in opera land at a very fast pace. An allegation of rape crumbled the facade surrounding University of Michigan professor David Daniels this summer, dubbed by many as one of the best countertenors in the world. The alleged assault, however, is not the only report of Daniels' predatory sexual behavior. Through police reports filed with Pittsfield Township, the Michigan Daily, the U of M student newspaper, found the Office of Institutional Equity knew about a report of Daniel's questionable behavior as early as March 2018, but the university still awarded him with tenure anyway. Kirill Sobrennikov, one of Russia's leading stage and film directors, has been under house arrest in Moscow since August 2017, awaiting trial and corruption charges that are widely considered to be trumped up, despite his imprisonment. Uh, Mr. Sobrennikov is directing a production of Mozart's Cosi Fantuta that opened in Zurich yesterday. Antonio Papano has confirmed he will continue his post at the Royal Opera House. After much, much speculation that the conductor would be leaving the ROH, Papano has confirmed that he will continue his post as music director until the end of the 2022 23 season. Opera News Editor-in-Chief F.F. Paul Driscoll has announced the recipients of the 14th Annual Opera Awards. This year's honorees are mezzo-soprano Rosalinda Elias, stage director and designer Lawrence Pelley, soprano Eileen Perez, hey, we know her, bass baritone Luca Pissaroni, and tenor Ramon Vargas. Exit stage right, Nathan Ward, tenor and a member of Opera Colorado's 2017-2018 Young Artist Program, lost his battle with depression two weeks ago. The company company memorialized him with a moment of silence before one of their performances this week, uh, remembering him in a statement as kind and thoughtful and generous. And on this day, November 12th, it was the premiere of Dön by Engelbert Humperdinck in 1902 and last year, the premiere of Der Meter by Arnulf Hermann in Frankfurt. That's your
1: two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School. With George CedarQuest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. That's right. We're all in the house
2: tonight. Big full house. And, uh... George. No, I do know George. Did you forget about I, George already? I said, I said... Oh.
5: Weston is kicking us all off the island. I'm, I'm, I'm over I'm here. the captain now.
2: <laughs> Sorry, George. It's my show now. Um, so, yeah. So, the big news, obviously. Um, David Daniels.
3: Well, this broke, um, like, a little bit before last week's show, but we went right. in the studio to talk about it. I mean, I was, but no one ever talks about me, so... <laughs> It's this is rough. And like I'm gonna just yeah. come out and say that like when the first allegation uh was published from Samuel Schultz, I was um skeptical because I felt like this is the first time I'm hearing about any of this. I mean I like I said, like I understood gay behavior sounds to some people like really, really hedonistic and racy and maybe that's like the shocking thing for most people. But now, like, the other shoe has dropped. Or the other yeah. pant leg like, has yeah. dropped. Several, like, this several is, shoes. This is pretty incriminating,
2: and I think it's, it's curtains for... Yeah, the uh, we'll, we'll post the, uh, the uh, uh, article on our website. Um, uh, there are, you know, well, there's pictures, several text and, threads. And as
5: you said, Oliver, I don't know. if our, Do we need to keep talking about it? Do we want to no, keep like about it? No, but it's the
3: same thing with like Aziz Azar and Zara. Like, I love this guy. I think he's so funny. And I yeah. think it's really important to have, like, a brown person... You know, creating art the way he does and getting on Saturday Night Live and, you know, taking it to the man. And like, I really, really respect him as a comedian and as like a person in popular culture. Yeah. Yeah. But those
4: are not the same
3: situation. Oh, I know they're not. And like, that's why I was thinking, like, oh, maybe this is just like some disgruntled,
5: you know. I just think that with the David Daniels thing, unfortunately, and we kind of touched on this before we started this show, there's clearly a behavioral pattern. Right. Um, And when you are in a position of power, and yeah. you knowingly are soliciting or approaching um, university students, at yeah.
3: which you hold. No, I like mean if that's, you read that's if you read the article, indefensible. It's, it is indefensible. Yeah. But yeah. I'll just say that there's a code that we don't talk about that gay guys don't talk about. But there's a code, and like there are things that you do, sure, that you don't talk about. You know, like yeah, yeah. But I, this is. But I think that yeah, when you get too much power, it becomes confusing. Like, what can you talk about? Right,
5: and I don't want. I don't ever want to be made to feel uncomfortable when I'm in a voice lesson. I'm literally there being about as vulnerable as I could possibly be by saying, hey, this is my, cha- my craft that I've chosen to pursue, and I've decided to come to you for your knowledge, for your wealth of talent, so you yeah. can help me grow. Yeah. And to take advantage of that, to me, is infuriating, and I hate that. And well, I,
3: as creative consultant of this show, I now have released you from having to be shirtless. <laughs> <laughs> During the taping of Opera Box Corp. Oh,
5: thank God. Uh, one step at a time, one yeah. small step. Does this mean I don't have to get my back shaved <laughs> anymore?
2: <laughs> Uh you still have to oh wear the hot goodness. pants though. Uh, I'm okay with that. Can it. I can I can I put my shirt back on Oliver or is uh, it just Toby? <laughs> just me. oh, oh well. One uh. at a time. Growth happens incrementally. So uh speaking of uh, of uh, problematic things, uh, the Sobrenikov story I think is kind of fascinating. Um, he's accused of fraud in Russia. But coincidentally, he also has uh, been outspoken about his support for the uh, LGBT community in Russia, and has criticized the annexation of Crimea. Uh, so that Two house arrest—that that, that house arrest flat. seems pretty. <laughs> Uh it's I'm sure it's just a coincidence. No, it, it, this is very he's very clearly uh put in there by the government. now that I've said that, I'm going to get uh Putin, you know. <laughs>
5: Weston won't be here next
2: week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if Putin That's is, one way to take our uh, show uh, back. Mr. Putin, if you're <laughs> listening to the show, I I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Huge fan. Uh, <laughs> uh. But it is it is kind of a uh a, an interesting thing. And the reason I want to I want to talk a little bit about this is because we got a listener mailbag um um which I don't think I have a, an audio clip for, so I'll, I'll do my best Norm impression. Listener mailbag. I think I nailed it. Um, <laughs> yep. That's so pretty good. We have, I, I, think, I, I think I really nailed it. So uh, Dale from Phoenix writes, and this is in reference to a previous uh, story that is kind of related to this one, uh, quote, I read recently that both Ava Martin and Placido Domingo are lending support to the Hungarian state opera tour in the U.S. The New York Times names Domingo as a benefactor. As you know, the right-wing nationalist leader in Hungary is Viktor Orban. What's your take on operatic royalty like these two, supporting an opera company that is being used, in my opinion, as a propaganda tool? Thank you, Dale, from Phoenix. Well, so
5: I think we all probably agree. I don't want to speak out of turn that the state opera company is turning into a propaganda tool oh it, it, uh, they,
4: they're not even is. trying to make that a secret right. i mean they're they're openly saying this it, is this
2: is a very i think uh, especially uh eastern european phenomenon uh because we're because we're looking at russia with the close with the with uh locking down brennik uh, uh, is it oh, i've already forgotten what his name is uh apologies to our russian <laughs> listeners um he uh you know there there is a sense that the the high arts need to be controlled in or, uh, to be part of the government. And that's a tradition that extends in Eastern Europe in Russia and Hungary, in this case, uh, all the way back to the, at least the 19th century. Um, the, the, what what sprang to my mind as, as I was reading, uh, as we were talking about Hungarian state opera a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, was the uh, the Kirov, n- now the Marinsky Theater, during kind of the Soviet era. In, which is in St. Petersburg. Right. It, uh, some of the best recorded renditions of Russian opera on, on disc to this day uh, came out of the Kirov. And Kirov, of course, uh, it, it was the name of an official who was a personal friend of Joseph Stalin. Um, and its I, I do think it's its really... It's kind of an inescapable sort of association in many ways. Yeah, it's definitely
4: tough when you have the politics and the art weaving so closely. Because right. for singers like with careers like Eva Marton and Plaza Domingo, they... I mean, what, they are, what their memory, what their nostalgia of this company might be and all of their close connections to it, those might not necessarily be the same thing as what the company is turning into right. now.
2: And, and, and th- That being said, I, I am somewhat inclined to give Marton a, a bit of a pass. Uh, oh, and I should say, uh, Domingo is going to be uh, conducting the Hungarian State Opera Orchestra. Um, and she, uh, Marton, is just going to be giving a speech uh, on the first day of the tour. Right, but... Um, and uh, I, I'm inclined to give her a little bit of a pass because her debut at the HSO in 1968 was one that kind of put her on the map and really helped her launch her international career. But right, on, so but, but, as, as was, but I'm, I'm, not,
4: I'm not saying that... You, even though they're supporting this company, that doesn't right. necessarily mean... That they, I mean, they, if they're supporting the company that they premiered with in the '60s and '70s, that sure. doesn't necessarily mean that they are falling in line with these politics. But I do, I, I kind of expect more of people who are at the highest level of this art form to. They, I think that they have a responsibility to speak out uh, when, when this has been reported so, so thoroughly and, and, and is so obviously an issue that, that that is going to be, cause problems for people, cause headaches for people. Uh, these are these aren't necessarily popular policies in America. I don't think that you would no. really. <laughs> I don't really think that many feathers would be ruffled over here it, by 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 taking a stand and uh, the for them to not do that just strikes me as irresponsible. And and, they, and even if they're drawing a line, they're I mean they're not drawing a line, which it there you can have debate about whether or not one even can draw a line, but to not try to just seems la- like yeah. It is very this, privileged. This is very
2: much in the current zeitgeist you know there's the new york times article a few weeks ago about the hungarian state opera receiving millions from the government and then of course uh canceling that musical of billy Elliot because it uh <laughs> promoted uh being gay uh, and uh, just a, a lot a lot of that it's, explains it's, why that's
3: my favorite movie <laughs>
2: isn't that what all music theater does <laughs> yeah well yeah but that's what the hungarian state opera thinks apparently um but it is Wait until they accidentally hire Anthony Roth-Costanzo at
3: Hungarians.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Good thing there aren't any, very many gay artists out there. That would be tricky. That would make this
2: all so much more difficult. Oh my goodness. But it, it really is something that I think uh, a lot of... I think it's it's really... I mean, this is like the Wagner thing all over again. You know, you, you have to... You, there's, there's this sort of notion that you can divide sort of the craftsmanship of an art from the political and artistic intent of the art, uh, which I don't think you can really do. I mean, I don't think that these are
4: the same situation, though, because that's talking about what's in the source of the work by itself. Sure, sure, And we're talking about, you know, two contemporaneous things. Putting on these shows is being seen as a political statement in and of itself. Right. And to uh, praise one without acknowledging the other comes off as a tacit approval of both.
2: Right, exactly. Um, but then, of course, then you run into problems with well, w- well, what about uh, putting on uh, uh, an opera f- f- with Anna Trebko and Gergiev, who have both variously uh, been uh, support uh, voiced their support for Vladimir Putin, and were at le- and were protested at least once for having yeah, done so. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a real mess, and it's something that I think has to be kind of approached. Um, on an individual artist's level. But I think once you get to be a certain um degree of uh famous like Plácido Domingo and Eva Marton, you do have a greater responsibility to be aware of that. Um and uh I you know, you you almost wonder if how to what extent they are even aware of it. Yeah. Um I- I, I don't know I mean <laughs> we can get them on the show at some point we'll ask them directly and uh, no, sure. we'll tweet at them, them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'd like, I I, say. <laughs> I'd like to be a cool, yeah, Toby okay? will, will like all Eva Martone's <laughs> Instagram pictures we'll... speaking of which has Aline Perez uh, followed you back yet Toby let me check okay. we need all to right, wrap this up so um,
3: <laughs> we want to first of all can we hear uh,
2: Rosalind Elias for oh absolutely like a... uh, so uh, Toby you be checking uh, when we'll listen to a uh, clip of that here we go mm mm-hmm.
3: look at that I love it of the greatest American voices that you know lived in the shadow of like Richard Tucker and like Lantene Price and Zika Milanoff but like if Rosalind Elias was singing that way today she would easily be the best meth soprano it's not
4: like she didn't ever get a break (laughs) Oliver no no I mean like she sang
3: 687 performances uh, of Fifty-four different roles at the Met. I mean, she was Samuel.
4: Amazing... Samuel Barber tapped her to premiere two of his roles. yes yeah, no. I mean, she's
3: <laughs> an American legend, and I just want young singers out there to know who she is. Please, go out and listen to her amazing, amazing, and
4: singers. not just from that revival of Follies from ten <laughs> yeah. years ago. Yeah.
3: All right,
1: we got to wrap it up. Good call, bad call on opera box score.
2: All right, who's got a good call for me? Hit me. I have a great call. All right, what is it? Eileen Perez is still not fired.
3: No. <laughs> my I want to shout out to former Opera Box Score guest uh, Harry Rose, uh, used to be known as Opera Teen, uh, opera who is 20 writing. 20. <laughs> yeah, He's writing really great reviews of shows um, for Parterre. And I don't like Parterre, I don't like going there, but I will go there to read this kid's reviews. Cool. He's so, so smart. And he writes about singing in a way that we're not seeing written by anybody else. So good on him.
2: I've got a little uh, a good call, hopefully. We got at the uh, Rameau Charpentier Double Bill from the Canadian Opera Atelier uh, this Thursday and Friday in Chicago. Uh, and I hope to check it out if I can possibly get off work for it. And you should, too.
3: I will say that since you brought it up, um, I can get you in for 40 bucks. Uh, Ooh. If you go to the Harris Theater website and type in the code industry 40. Oh, I'll thank you. World industry 40 for really great for 40 bucks, Matt. And Thanks if you've got scoop.
4: more time this weekend to check out some offer that doesn't get done so much, you should check out Turn of the Screw by Benjamin Britten at Northwestern University featuring an all student cast. It runs Thursday through Sunday in the Ryan Opera Theater at 70 Art Circle Drive up in Evanston. Uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday shows are at 7.30, and Sunday is a matinee at 3. Tickets can be found at music.northwestern.edu.
2: Wow, that's going to be real spooky. Got all the information there and everything. (laughs) It's not the first time I've I've promoted a Northwestern opera production. I know what I'm doing here. And that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The new general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with any veterans that you may know. We're back on Monday, November 19th at 9 p.m. Central. More opera headlines and our hot takes on those stories. Join us then. This is WNUR-FM Evans in Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment.